Chapter 18, Lobster on Food Stamps. The line around the welfare building spanned the length of Vlit Street and wrapped around the corner. <clears throat> Barricades had been erected and extra police officers summoned. The governor had an announced that food vouchers would be given to households affected by storms that had flooded parts of the state, including Milwaukee County. And by 7 a.m., thousands of people had lined up jostling for a position and even trying to get inside by taking a door off its hinges. <clears throat> the Marsha P. Cogs Human Services Center was massive. Three stories of cream brick. It had 170,000 square feet and 232 large windows. The building had originally held a Schuster's department store, but the store, along with the surrounding neighborhood and city, had fallen on hard times around mid-century. <clears throat> it was finally shuttered in 1961 and the building sold to the county. When the building was renovated in the early 2000s, it consolidated 450 county employees under one roof. A California-based artist was commissioned to install bright multicolored ceramic tiles above the windows that displayed words like contemplation and dance. She called her installation community key. A little past 8 a.m., Lorraine walked past the crowd and made her way inside, hardly looking up to notice the strolling security guards or escalators transporting people between floors to fill out forms and meet with caseworkers. She took number 4023 and waited. Lorraine was there to get her food stamps reinstated. Soon, not a seat was empty, and room 102 filled, filled with the sounds of children and chatter. An older woman leaned on her umbrella and tried to sleep. A mother spanked a toddler. Another was engrossed in women who love too much. After one hour and 40 minutes, Lorraine's number was called. Not bad, she thought, having spent entire days in the welfare building. I had an appointment on the 20th this month, Lorraine explained, to the multitasking and manicured woman behind the glass. But I got between the time of my scheduled phone call. I had gotten evicted. You have to reschedule your appointment, the woman, woman replied. It was another missed meeting and another canceled benefit, both the result of an eviction that threw everything off course. The woman handed Lorraine some papers. Here is a list of the things you need to bring with you. I don't have anything with me, Lorraine replied, reading the list. Most of the necessary paperwork was in storage. Well, if you don't have anything, then you can't bring anything, the woman smiled. Lorraine looked confused. But will I still get my benefits? That's why you have to come in for an appointment. I can, I can give you a food pantry referral. Would you like to go to the food pantry? Lorraine took an escalator down, downstairs to the food pantry, walking out with two grocery bags filled with canned beef and kidney beans and other things she hated. Sometimes family members who didn't know any better would ask Lorraine why she didn't just call to schedule her appointments. Lorraine would laugh and ask, oh, you want to try the number? She had never once gotten anything but a busy, busy signal. At her follow-up appointment, Lorraine managed to get her $80 a month food stamp allowance reinstated, even without all the necessary paperwork. Leaving the welfare building, she shuffled past throngs of bored, tired people and street alcoholics 
congregating outside and into a nearby furniture store with bars over the windows. Inside, experimental jazz was playing over an organized clutter of plump recliners, dark wood dining room sets, and brass lamps. A salesman with a Middle Eastern accent approached Lorraine, who asked to see the armoires. She inspected a seven-piece bedroom set. She gawked at a 62-inch television. I have TVs smaller than this, the salesman said. No, but I want this one, Lorraine smiled. Why don't you do it in layaway then? You have layaway? I love layaway. Lorraine was participating in a kind of cleansing ritual, swapping the welfare building's miasma of unwashed bodies and dirt with the smell of a new leather sofa. She was also entertaining a fantasy of making a good home for herself and her daughters. Jamie was finally out of prison and staying with Lorraine and Beaker until she found an apartment. And maybe Megan would come around. She used to put the girls' clothes, new clothes, on layaway. To Lorraine, putting something on layaway was saving. I can't leave money in my bank, she said. When you're on SSI, you can only have so much money in the bank. And it's got to be less than $1,000. Because if it's more, they cut your payments until the money is spent. Lorraine was talking about SSI's resource limit. She was allowed to have up to $2,000 in the bank. Not $1,000 like she thought, but anything more than that could result in her losing benefits. Lorraine saw this rule as a clear disincentive to save. If I can't keep my money in the bank, then I might as well buy something worthwhile. Because I know once I pay on it, it's mine, and no one can take it from me, just like my jewelry. Well, no one except Eagle moving. Before her eviction, Beaker had asked Lorraine why she didn't just sell her jewelry and pay Tobin. Of course I'm not going to do that, she said. I worked way too hard to sell to, for me to sell my jewelry. I'm not going to sell my life savings because I'm homeless or I got evicted. It wasn't like she just had um, she had just stumbled into a pit and would soon climb out. Lorraine imagined she would be poor and rent strapped forever. And if that was to be her lot in life, she might as well have a little jewelry to show for it. She wanted a new television. Not some worn and boxy thing inherited from Lane and Susan. She wanted a bed no one else had slept in. She loved perfume and could tell you what a woman was wearing after passing her on the sidewalk. Even people like myself, Lorraine said, we deserve, too, something brand new. Lorraine didn't put anything on layaway that day. But when her food stamps kicked in, <clears throat> she went to the grocery store and bought two lobster tails, shrimp, king crab legs, salad, and lemon meringue pie. <clears throat> Bringing it all back to Beaker's trailer, she added Cajun seasoning to the crab legs and cooked the lobster tails in lemon butter at 350 degrees. She ate everything alone in a single sitting, washing it down with Pepsi. The meal consumed her entire monthly allocation of food stamps. It was her and Glenn's anniversary, and she wanted to do something special. I know our relationship may not have been good, but it was our relationship, she said. Some things I will never get over. But the lobster helped. When Lorraine spent money or food stamps on non-essentials, it baffled and frustrated people around her. 
including her niece, Sammy, Susan, and Lane's daughter. My Aunt Lorraine is one of those people who will see some $200 beauty cream that removes her wrinkles and will go and buy it instead of paying the rent, said Sammy, a hairstylist with her own shop in Cudahy. I don't know why she doesn't just stick to a budget. Pastor Daryl felt the same way, saying that Lorraine was careless with her money because she operated under a poverty mentality. To Sammy, <clears throat> Pastor Daryl, and others, Lorraine was poor because she threw money away. But the reverse was more true. Lorraine threw money away because she was poor. Before she was evicted, Lorraine had $164 left over after paying the rent. She could have put some of that away, shutting cable and Walmart. If Lorraine somehow managed to save $50 a month, nearly one-third of her after-rent income, by the end of the year, she would have $600 to show for it, enough to cover a single month's rent. After that would have come at after that would have come at considerable sacrifice, since she would sometimes have to forego things like hot water and clothes. Lorraine could have at least saved what she spent on cable. <clears throat> but to an older woman who lived in a, in a trailer park isolated from the rest of the city, who had no car, who didn't know how to use the internet, who only sometimes had a phone, who no longer worked, and who sometimes was seized with fibromyalgia attacks and cluster migraines, Cable was a valued friend. People like Lorraine lived with so many compounded, compounded limitations that it was difficult to imagine the amount of good behavior or self-control that would allow them to lift themselves out of poverty. The distance between grinding poverty and even stable poverty could be so vast that those at the bottom had little hope of climbing out even if they pinched every penny. So they chose not to. Instead, they tried to survive in color, to season the suffering with pleasure. They would get a little high, or have a drink, or do a bit of gambling, or acquire a television. They might buy lobster on food stamps. If Lorraine spent her money unwisely, it was not because her benefits left her with so much, but because they left her with so little. She paid the price for her lobster dinner. She had to eat pantry food for the rest of the month. Some days, she simply went hungry. It was worth it. I'm satisfied with what I had, she said, and I'm willing to eat noodles for the rest of the month because of it. <clears throat> Lorraine learned a long time ago not to apologize for her existence. People will begrudge you for anything, she said. She didn't take care that she bought the $14 tart balsamic vinegar or ribs or on-sale steak or chicken. Lorraine loved to cook. I have a right to live, and I have a right to live like I want to live, she said. People don't realize that even poor people get tired of the same old taste. Like, I literally hate hot dogs, but I was brought up on them. So you think, when I get older, I will have steak. Now I'm older, and I do. The next month was August, and Lorraine used some of her food stamps to buy instant mashed potatoes, ham, and creamed corn for a hard luck family that had moved into the trailer next to Beaker's. 
The family of six had recently lost many of their things in an eviction and were sleeping on the floor. Once dinner was ready, Lorraine led a prayer. Dear God in heaven, thank you so much for this food. and Thanks for all the people in my life who have blessed me. Thank you for Jamie, and thank you for my brother, Beaker. Even though he makes me so angry sometimes, I still love him, Lord. Please take care of my brother. Amen. Two days later, someone knocked on the door. It was a tall white man with a mustache and a tucked-in collared shirt. He was holding a bright yellow piece of paper. Good morning. We are going to have to shut your gas off this morning, he said. Lorraine took the paper. Oh, okay, she said sheepishly. There's payment information on the back there. Have a nice day. The man went behind the trailer with his toolbox. So Uncle Beaker hasn't been paying the gas, Jamie asked, working her mascara brush. I guess not, Lorraine said, looking down at the yellow paper reporting a debt of $2,748.60. When do you finally grow up and start paying your bills? Uncle Beaker needs to grow up and stop living like a child. You too, Mom. You have a real problem with living above your means. You need to really just not do that. Lorraine looked at her daughter. I don't know when you got so cute, she said. As fall bled into winter, warmth began seeping out of the trailer. The thin walls and countertops and water and silverware in the drawer grew cold. Lorraine and Beaker burrowed under blankets, doubled up on sweaters, and plugged in two small piece heaters. They both slept more to keep warm. If Lorraine fell asleep on the couch, Beaker would put an extra blanket over her. Early morning was the worst. Beaker would put on his heavy coat, but Lorraine's winter clothes were sitting in Eagle Moving's bonded storage facility. They were not the only tenants in the trailer park who couldn't afford to reinstate their gas before the first snow fell. As for Tobin, he hated the snow. He traveled to warmer climates during the winter. One fall day, Beaker told Lorraine he was moving to a federally subsidized assisted living facility for the elderly and disabled. The following morning, he did. This caught Lorraine by surprise. They had never really learned to talk to each other. After Beaker left, Lorraine knew she had to come out of hiding and make new arrangements. If not with Tobin, then at least with the new management company. She worked up the courage and walked down to the office in sweatpants and a stained black fleece. I need to get emergency assistance as soon as possible, Lorraine told the college kid who had replaced Lenny. I'm so cold. The heat? All I know is I need the heat on. Oh my goodness, the college kid said without looking up. He was nonplussed. He was learning. The college kid dialed the number to Beak Management and put Lorraine on the phone with Geraldine, the office manager. Geraldine told Lorraine that Beaker owed almost $1,000 in back rent. The gas bill was not the only he hadn't paid. Lorraine sat in the office chair, resting her forehead on her palm. Please, Geraldine, I need your help. I need your understanding. After a few more minutes, Lorraine hung up the phone. Her best hope of staying, she believed, was to convince Beaker to pay his back rent. <clears throat> Beaker's new place was in the Woods apartment on College Avenue and 35th Street, across the street from Mud Lake. It was a white wall clean and new smelling and warm. Lorraine asked Beaker to settle his debt with Beak. He said he could not pay two rents. 
Lorraine said she couldn't pay last month's rent because her money had already gone to storage. At this point, Lorraine had paid Eagle moving $1,000. Reuben had a room to store Lorraine's things, and Elaine had a truck. But both said no, no when Lorraine asked them for help. Well, I hope you go live with your storage because that's all. Beaker stopped himself. Lorraine looked pitiful. She had heavy bags under her eyes, and her hair was a mess. It had been days since she showered. She refused to ask Lane and Susan to, to use theirs. Beaker knew his trailer might just as well have been an abandoned shed. The heat, hot water, phone, and cable had been cut off. A helpless, dull silence hung between brother and sister. Then Beaker said, take one of those sweaters. Lorraine had six days to be out of Beaker's trailer. Beaker had written Beak Management a letter that read, I'm moving and will be leaving my trailer to Beak Management for the money I owe them. I'll be out, and so will my sister. Lorraine learned about Beaker's betrayal. That's what it felt like anyways. When one of Beak's property managers got her on the office phone three days after she had visited her brother in the Woods apartment, the manager told Lorraine to be out by the first of the month. She had pleaded, please, I have no place to go, and I'm not this bad person. But in the end, she just said, I see, I see. Thank you for your time. God bless you. Lorraine sat down. I don't know what to do or where to go anymore, she said. I have no idea. Lorraine began looking for a new place to live in the streets surrounding her church. It was the centerpiece of her life. It might as well be the centerpiece of her housing search, too. She shuffled gingerly along the icy sidewalks, calling landlords. Then she decided to stop by the housing projects in South Milwaukee, where she grew up. The woman in the office told Lorraine they were full and not accepting applications, but she gave Lorraine the address to HUD's offices. HUD stands for the Housing of Urban Development. The Milwaukee branch of the Department of Housing and Urban Development was located downtown on a top floor of the Blue, a grand modern tower with a mirrored facade interspersed with rows of candy blue glass. Lorraine's wet shoes squeaked on the lobby's terrazzo floors. The HUD receptionist handed Lorraine the multifamily housing inventory report, 13 legal-sized pages listing all federally assisted rental housing in the metropolitan area. I have no idea where half of these places are, Lorraine muttered at the long list of addresses and phone numbers. It hardly mattered, since most of the properties were re reserved for the physically disabled or elderly. In fact, for years, Lorraine had assumed that most public housing was exclusively for senior citizens. And even they, a lot of them, couldn't get low-income housing, she remembered. So I thought, if they can't, neither can I was why Lorraine had never before thought to apply for public housing. Politicians had learned that their constituents hated the idea of senior housing, a lot less than public housing for poor families. Grandma and Grandpa made for a much more sympathetic case, and elderly housing provided adult children with an alternative to nursing homes. When public housing construction for low-income housing households ceased, it continued for the aged, and high-rises originally built for families were converted for elderly use. Lorraine found two addresses on HUD's housing inventory that accepted applications for people who were neither elderly nor handicapped 
and they were located on the far side of the city. Lorraine did not consider the near south side to be an option, let alone the north side. The application asked if she had ever been evicted. Lorraine circled yes and wrote, I had some complications with the landlord, and he evicted me. On the day that Lorraine had to be out of Bleecker's trailer, ice spread over the city. In early December, snow had fallen, melted, and when the temperature dropped, froze. Lorraine stood in her kitchen, listening to the sawing sounds of people scraping their car windows and chipping the ice from their doors. There was a pile of trash on the floor, mainly beat. Beaker's empty Maverick cigarette boxes and chocolate milk boxes and dirty dishes were piled in the kitchen sink. The cold had immobilized Lorraine under blankets on the couch. The cold and the question of what to do next. Little had been cleaned since water had arrived. I don't care anymore, she said, swallowing pain relievers and antidepressants. Lorraine had applied to or called on 40 apartments. She had had no luck on the private market. Excuse me. And her applications to public housing were still being processed. Lorraine didn't know where she was going to go. She was considering approaching Thomas, a man her age who lived alone in the trailer park, or Miss Betty, whom Lorraine only knew as old lady who lives across the road. Lorraine packed up her remaining things. Her plan was to pay public storage $50 to keep them. Late in the day, Lorraine knocked on Miss Betty's door. She was a small white woman with crystal eyes and silvering blonde hair falling past her shoulders in double braids. Miss Betty looked younger when seated and enjoyed a slow cigarette, but she walked like an old woman hunched with one arm held close. When the women knew of each other came from passing hellos and rumors. What the women knew of each other came from passing hellos and rumors. But when Lorraine asked Betty if she could stay with her, Betty said yes. Sure, you can stay with me until after the winter. Miss Betty raised an eyebrow. I know you're not as big of a problem as they say you are. Lorraine smiled. I'll be able to take a shower and everything, she said. Betty's trailer might have been the most cluttered in the whole park. There was a room for Lorraine, but little else. Miss Betty had piled her tables, magazines, and old mail and canned food and bottles of soy sauce and candy. In the living room, a tree bent forward the window, shedding its leaves on the floor, and keepsakes were clustered together on shelves next to a picture of Jesus. There was an order to the mess. The bathroom drawers bore a resemblance to the nuts and bolts aisle at the hardware store. With all the travel-sized tubes of toothpaste and bobby pins and hair ties and nail clippers grouped together in their own respective compartments. In the kitchen, Betty had hung a sign. Self-control is defined as refraining from choking the shit out of someone who is desperately deserving of it. Lorraine agreed to pay Betty $100 a month. A few days after moving in with Miss Betty, Lorraine heard back on her applications to public housing in the form of two rejection letters. Each letter listed a pair of reasons Lorraine's applications were turned away. Collections from the state of Wisconsin and eviction history. Lorraine understood 
eviction history, but not collections from the state of Wisconsin. When she called to find out more, she was told she owed property taxes. Property? She laughed after getting off the phone. <clears throat> I'd love to know how I owe property taxes. Betty thought Lorraine should appeal. She looked over the top of her large glasses and said, You have to fight, Lorraine. I had to fight for my Medicaid. I don't have the energy, Lorraine answered, and I don't feel like getting rejected again. Betty nodded. She understood. A few days later, found Lorraine in an especially religious mood, her church's truth class fresh in her mind. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? Lorraine asked Betty. A hottie, Betty replied without missing a beat. A long, unlit cigarette shot out of her lips like a plank from a ship. Oh, Betty, Lorraine giggled. Betty sauntered over and tapped the Jesus picture. Hottie, she said. <clears throat> I've always liked men with facial hair. Naughty Betty, Lorraine cooed. The new friends talked and laughed into the night. On the couch, they fell asleep at the same.